Welcome to Lion and Lamb. Is that how it should be? It sounds a little echoey. We're good. Uh, hey, raise your hand if you made it out to the Isle of France yesterday. Yeah. Hey, we've got to thank God for a windswept but beautiful day and setting. Uh, and uh, even, uh, hey, I appreciate the, the fact that uh, Reagan and Dan won the, the corn bag toss thing. It's in the jeans, of course, you know, <laughs> not. But, but uh, hey, listen, uh, it was a beautiful time, and we also want to thank Stephen Sally for giving us that opportunity and being our host. <laughs> I want to start today by reading you a poem, a sonnet actually, uh, called The Prologue by a guy named D.A. Carson, because it kind of encapsulates what we're going to talk about today. Before there was a universe, before a star or planet, when time had still not yet begun, I scarcely understand it. The eternal word was with his God, God's very self-expression. The eternal word was God himself, and God had planned redemption. The word became our flesh and blood, the stuff of his creation. The word was God. The word was flesh, astounding incarnation. But when he came to visit us, we did not recognize him. Although we owed him everything, we haughtily despised him. In days gone by, God showed himself in grace and truth to Moses, but in the word of God made flesh, their climax he discloses. For grace and truth in fullness came and showed the Father's glory. When Jesus dawned our flesh and died, that is the gospel story. All who delighted in his name, all those who did receive him, all who by grace were born of God, all who in truth believed him, to them he gave a stunning right, becoming God's dear children. Here will I stay in grateful trust. Here will I fix my vision. Before there was a universe, before a star or planet, when time had still not yet begun, I scarcely understand it. The eternal word was with his God, God's very self-expression. The eternal word was God himself. And God had planned redemption. Father God, we give you all praise. And Lord, in your eternity past, you saw and you knew that we would fall and we would need God coming to earth as flesh and blood. Lord, help us to understand what that means to each one of us, that it is more than just a, a doctrinal fact. It is the essence of our relationship. Father, help us to grasp these truths today through my feeble words. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're, uh, I think this is the fifth in a series called Head to Heart. And 
It's about passing on genuine faith to succeeding generations. And uh, we know from Deuteronomy 6 that it's important, very important, that we pass our faith on to our children and our children's children uh, as much as we can. In general, we've pointed out that this requires both word and spirit, truth and relationship within our families and within our church body. As Moses commanded Israel, God's truth shall be on your heart so that the generations that follow will love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, and might. And so we do want to be faithful, but we also want to be effective. So both truth and relationship are necessary. Now, I'm sure that some of the guys uh, in here uh, maybe think of relationships as a little bit too touchy-feely for their comfort. But let's think about this. Do you know any really nice people that you've met and they're attending a church where you know God's word is not being taught? Uh, why do people believe and do such crazy things in cults? Why do some teens engage in criminal activity to be accepted by peers or even to join a gang? And why do young women resist being rescued from sex trafficking? Now, there may be many factors, but I would suggest to you that relationship and the resulting trust, no matter how misplaced, plays the strongest role in that connection. Last month, we started to look at the relational facet of the transfer of our faith on. And our faith is based upon truth, but that truth is not so much a what as it is a who. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I am the truth and the life. So to believe that, we've got to be confident that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And therefore, we discuss the many evidences that help us be assured of that fact, okay? All the prophecies he fulfilled, uh, his virgin birth, and all the miracles that he performed. Because we've got to be confident of that if we have any hope of passing it on to the next generation. Uh, we do not simply want that fact to be a fill-in-the-blank answer on a Sunday school worship worksheet for our kids. So we gave resources last month for you to do that training, and you can find those on the website on the handout. Last week, Mike taught about our love for God, and this week, we're going to focus on God's love for us. And the key to solidifying faith in the young is the love relationship between God and mankind. Uh, each of us hopes, I am sure, we wish, we long for connection to others. It's a part of our makeup, our DNA. 
We are relational beings. And I suspect that most, if not all of us, have at one point or another in our lives, and perhaps even now, feel misunderstood, unaccepted, deficient, unloved, alone, perhaps even despised. At those times or seasons of life, we long to hear someone say, I love you. I accept you just the way you are. I will always be there for you. Most people, even Christians, do not understand that the incarnation, God becoming man, is the hand of God reaching down to us personally. It's God's plan for giving us the security of his love. Barna Research uh, had concluded that over two-thirds of young Christians, these are Kids in church believe that the gospel is Jesus coming to earth to teach us how to earn salvation from God. And if you've been in a Bible teaching church for any period of time, you know that is an impossibility because we all sin. We all, as a result, fall short, and we cannot do it. We are separated from him. We are condemned by our sin. We all enter the world literally adrift in life without relationship with our creator or any sense of meaning in life. Because the wages of sin is death, we are born dead, spiritually stillborn in our sins passed down from Adam. How did that come about? God actually wanted a union, a perfect harmony with his creation. And so he gave mankind, starting in the beginning of his creation, a beautiful garden to enjoy, one so lush and perfect that literally heaven on earth with all that was needed, not just for physical assurance, not just the basic needs for our bodies. He also gave mankind all of our heart's desire, joy, peace, love, and relationship with him. And then... Mutiny by a serpent brought confusion, doubt, suspicion, and deception to Eve, and Adam willingly followed. This led not to just the loss of paradise, but the beginning of death for all and the separation of mankind from God. That fall caused mankind to live in sin and death. You can read about that in Genesis 3. The separation from his children grieved God to his heart in Genesis 6. And if mankind had truly recognized his position, what he had lost, he would have run to God and begged him to reconnect. But God so desired a personal relationship with his children that he took the initiative with his own plan. So to satisfy God's justice, perfect justice, payment by sacrifice was required to atone for our sins. You know, God cannot die. And Hebrews 2 tells us that because his children share in flesh and blood, we are human. We do die, but God had to become human in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Ephesians 1 tells us that God's secret plan was revealed. Paul tells us that 
so that we might have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So in essence, God said to his children, you turned your back on me, but I love you so much, I will not turn my back on you. I care so much about you that I will enter the world as flesh and blood to die in place, your place, for your betrayal, so that you will not be condemned to death and eternal loneliness without me. So it's vital to understand God's love that we and our children see Christianity not so much, not only just as truth claims and doctrine. It is the good news of a loving father who is so jealous of our love, adoration, and relationship with us that he sacrificed his own son for us. So let's take a look at some of the self-expressions, as Carson puts it, that characterize that relationship between God and genuine believers. And the first one is unconditional acceptance. We're going to spend most of our time on this one. We hear a lot about justice today. And a lot of people say we want justice for all. Anybody disagree with that? Well, you know, justice is what? It's getting what I deserve. That's the simplest definition. But the problem is God is pure, and so is his justice. The prophet Habakkuk says that God is pure, is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. But we're all sinners, and we fall short of his perfection. Therefore, what is our justice? What do we deserve? Do you really want it? It's eternal death. Romans 5, Paul explains that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So despite our sinful nature, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and it's only because Christ died for us that we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The point here is that those who choose to follow Christ are sinners. Yet God accepts us unconditionally, completely and in spite of our sin. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, and that's a wonderful big but, okay? but God being rich in mercy, which is not getting what I deserve, because the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us all alive together with Christ, 
by grace, getting what I do not deserve. You have been saved. Many have asked, along with that Philippian jailer, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, you really can't do anything to be saved. Why? Ephesians 2 goes on to tell us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that none of us can boast. Now, what does it mean to be a gift? Okay? Uh, it would be helpful, I think, to look at what is the legal definition of a gift. There are actually five elements to a legal gift. Okay? One would be capacity. Okay? So a minor, you know, a child under 18 cannot give away you know, their inheritance to somebody else. They don't have the, capacity, the legal capacity. Uh, a senile parent cannot, when the family gathers together, go to and, and reach out from under her mattress and take her life savings and hand it to the one child who has been the least supportive and most vindictive and least helpful in caring for mom because the other kids standing around would look at her and say, uh-uh. She does not have the capacity, and they will win in court, okay? So we, I think we're okay on this one because I think God has capacity, okay? I don't need to go into that any further. The second element is donative intent. The giver has to intend to give it, okay? So God desires that all people should be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2. He has the intent, the third one is without consideration. In other words, we don't get anything in exchange. We understand that salvation is a free gift, not of our own doing. The next one is delivery of the gift. It's more than just an offer. I had this happen to me. My grandmother told me that when I would visit their home, they did live just a few blocks away from us, and they had this beautiful one of those narrow grandfather clocks, okay, that you wound up, and it had this great big pendulum that went like this, tick, tock. And I would stand in front of it, she told me, and I would say, tick, tock, my clock, over and over again. And so one day she told me, Kent, one day this will be yours. And then... My grandparents moved away to live with another son in, uh, in Texas, and one day I heard that the clock went to one of my cousins. And I've gotten over the bitterness, but it was a nice clock. But you see, the promise didn't make the gift. The gift had to be delivered to me. God so loved the world that he gave his only son Whosoever believes in him which should not perish but have everlasting life. He's already delivered. And finally, and this is key for us, for there to be a legal gift, there must be acceptance of the gift. Okay? If you refuse it, no longer a gift. You can't go back and after you've refused it and they give it to somebody else, say, no, you gave it to me. No, you didn't give it to him because he refused it. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God, and that's in John 1. Because salvation is a gift, we can make no payment for it. Jesus has already paid the price. No amount of money given or good works done for others will save us. In other words, he loves and accepts us unconditionally when we humbly recognize the obvious, that we're sinners, undeserving of eternal life, and because Jesus paid the debt for those sins, acceptance of that gift is all that we can do to receive it. Now, to be clear here, because Christians are confused on this issue, good works are irrelevant to salvation. Good works do not count toward salvation. After salvation, we are commanded to love and serve others. Ephesians 2 continues, right after the first about by grace alone, not works. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are not a cause, but an effect of salvation. Kids, well, uh, years ago, when Chris and I were taking a parenting course, an elder who happened to work in the uh, mental health area with counseling and that sort of thing, uh, he said this, that children perceive and relate to God in the same way that they perceive and relate to their parents, particularly their father. So, question, can we in good conscience withhold our acceptance and love for an errant child when God accepts us in our despicable sin? So this tells us that as parents and grandparents, we need to make sure that those younger members of our family feel our complete acceptance and love even when they sin, just as Christ accepts us unconditionally. I know what you're thinking. This does not mean that we condone everything they do. When children are in the home, we've got to deal with the sin and the disobedience as it comes, but always with a restorative spirit of love. Now... You guys have heard this before. Some parents will be so permissive out of a false understanding of love that they never correct. Just they do their best at managing the outbursts of their riotous offspring. Others side strongly on truth so that there is only fear and intimidation and rebellion breaks out as soon as the kids are out of their sight or out of their home. Neither of these is genuine love or unconditional acceptance. Developing a relationship while in the home is key to what happens as life goes on. As a resource for that, I would highly recommend what Sean and, and Tanya have been teaching, Growing Kids God's Way, and there are many other resources out there, to developing relationship in the home and, un, and unconditional acceptance. As children leave the home, and especially as they marry, the relationship changes dramatically. They are still hopefully accountable to you and others as a brother and sister in Christ. Perhaps when destructive sin enters in, but in the end, they are accountable to God for their decisions. But having an already established relationship makes your counsel more desirable to them when they do stumble. 
As grandchildren stumble in life, grandparents are there to provide love and acceptance. It's, again, a very different relationship. You want to be, as a grandparent, somebody who can provide an open door when perhaps that grandchild of you closes the door on his or her parents. A couple of resources for that. Some of you heard, I think it's called Parenting Today's Teens. Well, Mark Gregston uh, he also wrote a book called Grandparenting Today's Teens that Christy and I have been in. Another is a, an old friend of mine named Ken Canfield, and he has an organization called GrandkidsMatter.org. So you can take a look at that one. Uh, vitally important, uh, if, you're, if you're younger, you don't have grandkids, probably eventually you will, or you'll have people that you know are young and need your counsel, so I'd highly recommend it. I want to move on now to the second self-expression, which is sacrificial love. And the fact that we cannot save ourselves reveals that we're weak and we need a Savior. Romans 5 again tells us, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. We were ransomed for the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. 1 Peter 1. Jesus' sacrifice is the greatest demonstration of love that has ever occurred. And he told us in John 15, greater love has no man than this, but to lay down his life for his friends. And that is what Jesus did for each one of us. And that is sacrificial love. There's also this thing about intimate understanding on your handout. The incarnation is a demonstration that Jesus wants a relationship with us so much that he became like us. He experiences the ups and downs of being a baby, a child, a teen, and an adult. And in describing the incarnation, we often use phrases like the God-man or God in the flesh or God with us or heaven came down, and those are all apt descriptions. However, those phrases simply do not capture the full significance of that act of God in which the creator of the universe lowered himself to become a baby in a feeding trough surrounded by dung that we call the world. Jesus understands us because he experienced our weaknesses and temptations. Hebrews 2 tells us, but for because he himself was suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He experienced rejection from his own people, abandonment from his disciples, misunderstanding from his followers, betrayal by those closest to him, attacks from the religious leaders, and ridicule from the authorities, from common folk, and even the thief on the cross next to him. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in help, and help in time of need. Now, 
Having that understanding is vital. Maintaining it over time is also crucial. So let's look at continual connection. While or when Jesus' time was approaching, he warned his disciples that he was about to leave. And Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, "Uh, Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will later in John 13. Of course, for the previous three years, the disciples had followed ate, slept, communed with, learned from, been reproved by, and loved by Jesus. But he then told them later that it is better that he leaves. That was incomprehensible to them. But he knew that it was better that he die for their sins on the cross, rise again, ascend into heaven, and then give them a whole new connection. John 14, Jesus said, for I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. God so much wants a relationship with us. He cares for us so much that his love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Got a question for all of you. Just don't raise your hand. Has anybody here ever been insecure? Or maybe a better question is, has anybody here never been insecure? The continual connection that God gave us is vital to our individual security. It's what allows us to hold on to God while everything else is falling apart. The author of Hebrews assures us that that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper I will not fear, what can man do to me? Now, this raises a question in our culture. Should we fight for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn? Should we care about uh, the sanctity of marriage? Or how about just maintaining reality and that a child cannot become God and determine what he or she is. Are those things important to us? Yeah, sure. However, if the culture accepts all those things, if everything falls apart, if we start to become persecuted, if we have to meet in secret, God will still be there, and he will still be our security. Praise God. Finally, I want to, we're getting closer to the end. Not quite there. Have you ever asked yourself, who am I? Now, if you're like most people, you probably on the spur would identify yourself as uh, somebody's son or somebody's parent or somebody's sibling or a friend of so-and-so or whatever. 
And uh, we, we tend to identify by our relationships uh, with other people. Uh, one of my daughters is a hairstylist here in town and apparently has quite a spread of, of clients. And I can't tell you how many times if I've met somebody and after we get past the initial stuff and we, we talk a little bit about our, ourselves, I hear, oh, you're Hannah's dad. Yeah? Yeah, and that's happened more than I can count. Uh, however, those human relationships cannot completely answer that important question, who am I? The incarnation provides the most intimate of relationships, and in the fullness of time, as Romans, I'm sorry, uh, Galatians 4 says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the incarnation made you and me, and God calls us his children. Now, the way that God reconnected with his lost children is the way that he identifies us, the way that he defines our identity. God so loved us that in order to make us his children, he gave us his son. So as believers, we can know that who we are, the children of the creator and the king of the universe. But it gets even more intimate than that. If I were to call you guys, particularly men, a snowflake, you might be offended. Now, I want to point out here that uh, isn't it amazing how the people appropriate biblical concepts and symbols, okay? So the left got the rainbow, and we know the rainbow is a good thing, right? About God's not ever washing us out again. But what do you think when you see a rainbow? Now, the right has taken the concept of a snowflake and made it a negative one. I don't think that's fair. As I understand, a snowflake is a person who is so sensitive that if there's the least bit of an innuendo, the least, you know, the, a joke or a name or anything like that, they just melt. Well, in one sense, we're all snowflakes. Yeah. Uh, you, as a part of God's miraculous creation, are like the trillions upon trillions of snowflakes fallen. Uh, there, I'm sure there are, all, there are many that are similar, but they've never found any that were identical. Within families, there are similarities, but no two children are identical. Even when we have what we call identical twins, there are differences in demeanor, moods, gifts, personalities, if not appearance. And this is recognized in God's word. When Christy and I were rearing kids, in the homeschooling movement, the reigning philosophy was basically out of two passages. One was Deuteronomy 6, you know, teach your children and your children's children, the, you know, God's word and all that. And the other was 
Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, right? You've all heard that. So we concluded, if we have regular devotions, even by force, if we stayed involved in a Bible-teaching church, if we associate with primarily, if not exclusively, with Christian families, and we discipline all the misdemeanors, that should do the trick, right? Set for life. The uh, problem is, that's not what the verse says. The way that he or she should go is actually according to that child's bent habits and interests. In other words, training and encouraging that child according to their individual uniqueness put in them by God. Now, even though it was clear to us that we had 11 very different children, we figured that, you know, we'd pretty much train them the same. I mean, just to be fair. So uh, beyond the practical point of learning from our mistakes, our point today is that every single one of us has been created by God differently. Uh, one of our daughter Ruth's most famous lines was during her high school graduation when she was thanking different people. And she got to her grandmother and she said that she was a lot like her grandmother in different sorts of ways. Think about that. And that was true. That was very true. She was right. God, uh, Romans 12 tells us that we each have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Therefore, you and I are distinct and uniquely qualified with our own skills, talents, preferences, personalities, but all for a relational purpose. We are to relate to our Father and to others with our uniqueness as part of a whole body. Romans 12 continues, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You became a child of God by being born again and with your own characteristics with which to love and live for your Father as part of the body of Christ, which is God's family. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he will. So hopefully each of you can see that you are a one-of-a-kind, unique individual. So, the toughest, roughest, gruffest guy in this church building is really a little snowflake. But only in the sense of uniqueness, and that's where the analogy ends, because a snowflake has a very short lifetime, but you will live forever. And you have not just a unique design or appearance you have unique gifts, skills, passions, and your own personality. Now, that's just not true of Christians. That's true of all mankind. Unbelievers have these same distinctives as well, and they may be able to understand. However, as believers, as Christ followers, you have something they will not have in their unbelief, the ability to understand your true place and purpose in life as designed by your Creator. Now, the reason we can 
know this is that it's not an abstract concept. The creator of the universe is flesh and blood, a person who humbled himself to become like us, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But that God loved us so much, he sent his only begotten son as a spotless lamb to take away, pay the price for our sins, and giving up his flesh and blood on the cross. So the key point, and I think I put this on the handout, in order to be first chair Christians, we started that back several months ago, one who's sold out for Christ, we need to encourage our children and grandchildren to have rock-solid faith. We need to understand and pass on the extraordinary relationship that's been given to us by his unconditional love and acceptance, his sacrificial love, his intimate understanding of us, and his continual connection. And finally, we need to see ourselves and help our young people see themselves as one-of-a-kind children of the king of the universe, a truth made clear by the incarnation. To wrap up here, I want to talk a little bit about myself, and this is not to pay attention to myself here, but I grew up in an imperfect but generally loving two-parent family, and we were in church. One of my earliest memories was in first grade when... uh, we would, uh, we, we used the look-say method where you just sat and you tried to read the words, okay? And we'd be in a little circle, maybe half a dozen students and the teacher, and I dreaded it because I had a terrible problem with stuttering. And it didn't help that I was in a school through grade school and junior high and high school with a bunch of geniuses. I couldn't understand how they could... They could know so much and say, you know, explain things so well. In junior high, uh, I formed a club uh, by the name of ARP. Not AARP, but ARP. We printed up T-shirts with the letters on it. It was the Association of Rejected Persons. (laughs) I remember spending hours in front of the mirror. I had... Steve will remember this. I had thick, wavy hair. It's hard to believe, but I did. And I spent hours trying to straighten it so I could look like the Beatles. <laughs> when I got to senior high, I saw that the way to get the girls was through sports. And so that's what I put my efforts into. I was a, perhaps a good, but never a great athlete. And before my senior year, football became my God. That's how I was going to make an impression. But God took away that idol, which allowed me to, through his circumstances, to meet my life partner. I knew that my father loved me. 
yet his unfaithfulness when I was young and again when I was in high school had a huge emotional impact on me. However, when I watched my mother forgive and take him back both times, I learned something about my heavenly father. Even though I'd been in church, it wasn't until I got to college that I accepted Christ and started on the road to acceptance of what God made me to be. After years of saying to my potter, why did you make me this way? The point is here that I do not want you to feel sorry for me. I know nobody will feel sorry for me because I am amazingly blessed. But listen, if that can happen to me, a kid in, a, in my circumstances with two parents loving us, think of the kids who have no father or those who have been abused by their father. And if God can allow me to accept myself as he uniquely created me, he can do that for you and your children and your children's children. Finally, I want to say I want to thank you for accepting me and allowing me to, be, to have the privilege to serve as an elder here for about the last 10 years. So let me get out of this. Please stand. And uh, we're going to recite out of John 1 here together. All right, as the the worship team comes up, together. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the flesh, flesh, but of the will of the man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.